Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Step Series. I'm a recovered alcoholic, and my name is uh, Megan. Excuse me. <laughs> Let's have our joke now. <laughs> I, I am the lighter side. Shannon, alcoholic. Hi, Shannon. Three people, one of whom was a codependent, were in line to be executed in the guillotine. The first person stuck his head in the hole, the rope was cut, and the blade fell, only to stop an inch above the person's neck. The executioner saw it as a sign from God, and so decided to let the person go. The next person put his head in the hole, the rope was cut, and again the blade stopped an inch above the person's neck. The person, too, was released. As the codependent walked up for his turn at the guillotine, he turned to the executor and said, You know, I think I can fix that. Thank you for that. Um, thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, uh, we're going to start our two-minute uh, meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that, that will make noise and that might or will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you to stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's start the meditation. Good morning. 
up on the screens to the left and right of me. God. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that uh, we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news the, this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Heather to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one. So it is kind of important to know what one is. <laughs> right here. I have it. The term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism and manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of, a, of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such tran transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of, different, of the different long before he has, is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few, in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they pre presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance 
that principle is con contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Herbert. Thank you, Heather. Um, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so please set your phones to airplane or meeting mode or just turn them off. Uh, we have Pat back tonight for his eighth session, and it's always a pleasure to hear Pat speak. I always get a lot out of it, so come on up, Pat. <laughs> Thank you. My name is Pat. And thanks to the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the program of AA. I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and for that I will be forever grateful. Uh, AA surely has given me a life worth living. I love my life today. I love being here. I love being anywhere in recovery in the rooms of AA. It's where I'm most comfortable. <laughs> Out there is like a little bit of a struggle for me, but in here I, uh, I connect, and, uh, and I look forward to coming to these meetings still to this day. I, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm one of the fortunate ones. I, I really am. I, uh, you know, I caught fire uh, early in recovery, and I never lost it. I never lost the fire and, and, the, and the love. And, I, you know, I was, I was at a meeting last night, and I was talking to a guy that I've been friends with for many, many, many years, and, and uh, you know, he's a chronic relapser, and, and it just, uh, you know, the real alcoholic just does not get this via consequences, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, he was facing, you know, not seeing his, his two kids again, I mean, he worked a year, I mean, this has gone on and on and on, and he had a period of sobriety, he had a period of, I think, seven, eight, nine years of sobriety, and, uh, and gave it all up for a hit off that crack pipe, you know, and, and anybody that's crackhead gets it, <laughs> you know, they get it, yeah, I understand, you know, and it's just cunning, baffling, and power, I don't care what you're, what you're, you know, whether it's the pipe or the bottle or the, you know, what it is, it's, uh, it just, still to this day, and, 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 and I see it, uh, because I see people catch fire, and then I see the fire diminish, and then I see the relapse, and, you know, I, I there's a, uh, you see people start in the back rows, you know, they come in here, I knew, I was, when I was new, I came in, sat in the back row, I was looking for my next ex, and, uh, you know, you look at the back of your head and go, yeah, that looks good, and uh, then you hear them share and you shiver, you know, like, maybe not, and, uh, I mean, yeah, let's, get, let's face it, it's like going to the dented can aisle in Publix and, you know, buying food, it's... <laughs> Like an insane asylum looking for a date, right? And, uh, and I don't mean that forever, but it to be, I mean, I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about you guys. You know, I'm talking about me. You know, I'm the, I'm the insane one. And, and, uh, but, you know, you watch, uh, something happens where, you know, the speaker says something or you hear something or something clicks or, or you get desperate enough and you start moving forward. And all of a sudden you're in the front row instead of the back row and you're staring at the speaker instead of the girl's head, you know, and... Uh, and I caught that fire, and I never moved back, but I see it all the time, where all of a sudden they start moving back, and they start looking for the relationship, they start, because they, they got the job back, they got the living, uh, the living uh, arrangement is back where it was supposed to be, and, and now they're, they're resting on their laurels, as Step 10 talks about, and, you know, they, they start looking around for something else, and, uh, 
and they lose that fire. It just diminishes. They start, you know, and in, in, uh, in we agnostics, one of my favorite paragraphs there is that, that, that deep down within every one of us is a fundamental idea of God, but blocked by, you know, the, the pomp and the calamity and the worship of other things. And that, that happens in recovery. That happens with a lot of years in recovery where you start worshiping other things. The money becomes important. The relationship becomes more important. And, you know, the voices in your head start to talk to you and tell you, you know, this is bullshit. This is this, this cultish thing that we're doing here in AA. That's, you know, because you know, nobody really wants to be here. I've said that a million times here. That you know, nobody has when they were growing up on in high school said, look, what I want to be when I grow up is a speaker in AA. No, nobody's got that written down anywhere. Because we didn't. Nobody wanted to be here. I get to be here. I, I get that. Now, you know, I'm, I don't. I, I don't mind being here now, but I don't brag about it. You know, I don't. I don't put it on a job application. You know. <laughs> But I get, you know, so, you know, the voices start and the ego kicks in and then, uh, and, and good things start coming and anybody that's relapsed knows what I'm talking about, you know. And all of a sudden the girl or the guy become more important than the meaning, you know, or the job becomes more important than the meaning, you know. And I, and I thought it was crazy when it, we were just talking about this last night and, and uh, I had no idea I was going to start here, but, you know, we were talking about this last night and when I, I remember arguing with the people in the room, when they would say, AA, recovery, your relationship with God has to be the most important thing in your life. And I would say, obviously, you have no children, you know, because my children are the most important thing. Now, I came in here, I just lost custody of my son. But I'm putting my children in front of recovery, you know. And obviously, I can't take, of my, take care of my children if I don't have a job. So children and job are right up there, too. I'll put AA three or four. You know, because whoever I'm sleeping with at the time, that's a priority. You know, whether it be my wife or not, you know, that, that's up there in the top three for sure, you know. And, and I would actually argue with you about that. And, and I realize today that I have none of that if, it is, if this isn't the number one thing in my life. That none of that exists. Because I made this the number one priority in my life, I got the kids back. I got the relationships in my life. I have... And, but I'm okay without them, you know, and that was the thing. And what are we talking about? <laughs> Eight and nine. Such somber steps. Can't we move on to something more exciting, right? <laughs> so there's no, uh, no coincidence that six and seven is before eight and nine, you know, that, that there has to be some tools of change uh, before we go out and face the world and, and try to make things right and try to repair the damage done. And that, that hopefully in 6 and 7 there's some demonstration of change uh, in our lives. I, mean, I become painfully aware of my defects of character. And, uh, and, that, and that's what it says in the 12 and 12. It talks about an attitude of awareness, you know. I'm painfully aware of uh, my defects of character, and I'm also painfully aware that I'm powerless over most of them, that, that uh, they have become a way of life for so long that those muscles are still strong, and, and my spiritual muscles are, are weak at that point, point. And, and my natural reaction is to fall prey to those defects of character, to fall prey to those instinctual drives that... Uh, that I'm so validated by, still to this day. And, and uh, <laughs> we were laughing on the way home, the, the story that I forgot to tell, which was, is so appropriate being at this meeting. I was on my way to this meeting last year, and I backed out of my driveway and took the side of her, uh, Shannon's daughter's car out on the way here. 
and uh, and I ran into the garage and got a plunger, and I thought if I could just pull this dent out, you know, nobody will notice, you know. And I got a plunger, and I'm plungering the dent. All I needed was a ski mask, really, you know. And I'm afraid, and I got compounds so I could get my paint off of the car and off of my. So did not, and I actually left the scene, and, and, and was on my way here to speak about spiritual principles, you know. <laughs> But I'm thinking, they'll just think it happened in a shopping center somewhere, and I'm off the hook, you know. That's insane, right? That's, you would think, that's crazy. What kind of behavior is that? But, and here's the thing, I couldn't live with it. I couldn't live with it long enough to get here, you know. And that's the spiritual muscle starting to get strong and saying, dude, you can't live like this anymore. You know, you're, what are you sacrificing here? I mean, where is your trust in God? And you know, I made the phone call to my wife and said, I just hit the side of your daughter's car. I got to go speak. Thank you. Bye. You know? and, uh, and then it's over and it's done and you, and you face the consequences. And it just, but still, my natural reaction when you come up against those instinctual drives is to retaliate. When you come up against what people will think about me or what you think about me or what I, you know, my self esteem or my, my pocketbook or my relationships, and you come up against that stuff, my natural reaction is, is to go into this protection mode. and but fortunately, I know how, how I maintain recovery, and it's to, uh, it's to not live in conflict. And, and, uh, and that's me. I've got to stay out of conflict. So, you know, we, we, in the first seven steps, you know, made a decision to get right with God, and those seven steps are about removing the things that are blocking me from God. And in the first three, they talk about getting right with God, and four through seven, they talk about getting right with ourselves so that we can remove the things that are blocking me from God. And, and, uh, and then carry the new me into this steps eight and nine, to carry the new me into uh, repairing the damage done and showing up different, you know, showing up different. I, I love what Bill says about Ebby. There was something about his eyes. There was something inexplicably different about him. And, and that's what I think people need to see. Now, it, you know, the demonstration don't necessarily need to come first, but it sure means a hell of a lot more when you show up different. You know, when you show up, then you're not a taker. You know, when you show up and they don't have to hide their purse, you know, when you show up and they and they're glad to see you, you know, it's a whole different deal. Uh, you know, once you've started to, to demonstrate some change and yeah, a couple of stories I like to tell uh, when we before I really get to because I mean, step eight, of, we always talk about six and seven being the shortest steps in the book. But step eight is really the shortest step in the book. It says we made a list. Uh, of people we've harmed, we made it in step four. That was that's the end of step eight, you know. And uh, but you know, two stories I want to tell, and and one of them is uh, uh, it's some history, and one of them is and, and it's it's those slender threads, right? The difference between us uh, being here today, having an IA meeting, and, and maybe not being here, and, and having a, the difference between whether I lived or died. I mean, that's really how how simple it was. Uh, when alcohol stopped working for me, I was suicidal. And, you know, alcohol was not my problem. Alcohol was my solution. And when it stopped working, I had a problem, you know. And that's how I landed here, because I'm telling you, if alcohol still worked for me, I'd still be doing it. You know, that was, that was my relief. Uh, Bill Wilson says that I love it. You know, when people are, you know, stock market crashes and people are jumping from buildings to commit suicide, Bill said, F that, I went back to the bar. You know, that was his solution, not his problem. And but I want to talk about a, a Lutheran minister uh, named Frank Buckman. And, uh, and, and Frank Buckman uh, started a hospice for young men. And, uh, and that was one of his dreams was to, uh, 
take care of uh, indigent uh, teens and, and young adults. And, uh, and uh, he needed money, so he brought in some partners to, uh, to help him along the way. And his partners took control of his, uh, of his business, of his, of his hospice, and, and decided to make it a for-profit uh, entity rather than a not-for-profit entity. And, uh, and it crushed him. I mean, he was absolutely blown away. He got a, he got a resentment, <laughs> right? I mean, a, a resentment that owned him. And he floundered a while, around for, uh, for a while, spending his parents' money uh, trying to medicate the resentment. And, uh, and he decides on his parents' dime to go to, uh, he talked him into loaning them, giving them some money to go to Cambria, England, and listened to a uh, Baptist preacher called, uh, named H.B. Meyer. And, uh, and he's going there to listen to this Baptist minister. And he sees a bunch of people going into this salon, men and women going into this salon. He thinks it's some kind of social event. And maybe he thinks he's going to go in there and get a date or something. I don't know. You know? And, uh, and there's a, uh, a, lady, a woman in there uh, preaching uh, by the name of Jesse Penn Lewis. And Jesse Penn Lewis is doing a talk on forgiveness. And he is blown away. And she talks about forgiveness freeing the forgiver. And, and that's where we're at in the 8 and 9, about, about forgiveness freeing the forgiver. Uh, and uh, he has a spiritual, he has a conversion experience as a result of this talk from Jesse Penley. So why does that matter? Well, because he goes on later on, he has his conversion in the early, early to mid-1900s, but he goes on in the, uh, in the 1920s to start the, what became called the Oxford Groups. Right. And uh, fast forward, Roland Hazard, who's a certain American businessman in Chapter 2, we know floundered around the United States trying to find help for his drinking, you know, wealthy, wealthy, wealthy uh, businessman. Can't get any help in this country, so he goes to Europe, he goes to Switzerland, he goes to Zurich, and he connects, he wants to connect with Sigmund Freud, but he doesn't, he doesn't connect with Sigmund Freud, he's unavailable, and Thank God for us, he doesn't connect with Sigmund Freud because he's probably doing dream therapy and cocaine, you know. But, uh, I mean, that's a fact. That's probably what he's doing, you know. And, uh, but he falls with uh, Carl Jung, and we, we read that in Chapter 2. And uh, Carl Jung uh, tells him he's got nothing for him. You know, I, didn't, I misdiagnosed you. I thought you had mental issues, but you're a chronic alcoholic. Right? This is, this is the, one of the top psychiatrists in the world, tells him, I've got nothing for you. I can't help you. You're a chronic alcoholic. I just thought you had mental problems. And he says, there's no hope. And then we see my favorite definition of a spiritual experience. It says, ideas, attitudes, and emotions that were once the guiding forces of these men and women are replaced by a whole new set of conceptions. You know, that they're, as, as you read in the spiritual appendix, you know, ideas uh, change. You know, change the way I think, change the way I feel, change the way I act. And, uh, and he says, great, I'm, my, my mother and father are very active in the church. I'll just go back to church. And he goes, that's not enough for you. And, he, and how does Young know that? Well, because he's there, right? Because if it was enough for you, if it was enough for him, then he would be in church. He wouldn't be in Switzerland looking for help, right? And that's how we know that whatever you know isn't enough for you. I mean, we have believers that come into this program and say, well, you know, I don't... I don't have a God problem. I'll just go back to church. Well, if church was enough, you wouldn't be here. Right? 
a, a better philosophy on life or, or better set of morals, a better code of ethics were sufficient, none of us would be here. We'd all be at church somewhere. So he seeks out the greatest, the most prestigious religious organization of that day, a first century Christian movement, which is the Oxford Groups. Right? And why is that relevant? Well, because Ebby Thatcher is shooting pigeons off his house in Manchester, Vermont, drunk, and gets arrested for firing a shotgun. I don't know if you've ever been to Manchester. We got the opportunity to go up there to the Wilson house. And, and uh, I mean, you can't, where Abby's house was, where he's shooting the pigeons, you're on Main Street, Manchester. It's a high-end area, you know, rich people area. And, and he gets arrested, and, uh, and they're ready to ship him off to the insane asylum. And Zebra Graves and, and Shep Cornell come and try to bail him out. And ask him, ask the judge, Judge Graves, Zebra's father, if they can take him to the Oxford groups and try to get him sober there. And, uh, and the judge doesn't trust his own son or Shep Cornell to release him to him. And he says, but if you go get Roland Hazard, I'll release him to Roland. And Roland takes Ebby to the Oxford groups. Now, Ebby, two months sober in the Oxford groups, inquires about Bill Wilson and asks where Bill Wilson is and how he's doing. He finds out he's in dire straits, and he visits Bill Wilson in Bill Wilson's kitchen, and we read that in, in Bill's story. Right? Those slender threads are the difference between us being here. If, if Frank Buckman doesn't start the Oxford groups, Roland Hazard doesn't end up in the Oxford groups, and Roland Hazard doesn't get Ebby Thatcher from going to the insane asylum, and Ebby Thatcher never talks to Bill Wilson, and Bill Wilson never meets Dr. Bob, which leads me to my second story, is that we all know that our Founders Day is June 10th, 1935, but in the forward to the second edition, it talks about them meeting on Mother's Day, right, 1935. And it goes on to say that Bob sobered up to his death, never to drink again, and that's not true. You know, that Dr. Bob relapsed. That Dr. Bob go, went to the uh, Atlantic City to a medical convention every year, and that year was no different. He wanted to go, and, and his wife said, don't let him go. He, every time he goes, he gets drunk. And, uh, and Bill said, hey, he's got to live around alcohol and let him go. Well, Ann was right. He didn't even make it to the train. He was drunk before he got on the train. And he comes back drunk. And at his, at his office, his nurse calls Bill and says, you need to go and get him, and you need to sober him up. He's got surgery in two days, and uh, you better get him ready for the surgery. And they coffee Bob up and walk him around for a couple of days, and they take him over to do the surgery, and he's shaking like a leaf. And give Bob a couple of drinks, a couple of bottles of beer, and some goofballs. I guess that would be like an equivalent to a Valium nowadays, you know. And by the way, you drug addicts that have a hard time of it and, and maybe still obsess after a while, don't feel bad. Bob obsessed for over two and a half years about a drink. He struggled. He was a little bit of an addict himself. Matter of fact, he was a lot of an addict himself. And so Bob takes a couple of these goofballs and has a couple of cans of beer, and he goes up and does a surgery. Bob's a proctologist, by the way. <laughs> I'm glad he, his, it wasn't my ass he was working on that night, but... <laughs> We don't have any documentation on how that worked out. I'm assuming it went well. No lawsuits were filed or anything like that. So. But Bob comes back down, and they go back to the Smith house, and Bob says, i got to go, and he jumps in the car, and he takes off. And, uh, 
and he goes to everybody. Bob thought the only thing he couldn't do was to make direct amends to the people in that town because the people knew that he had been doing surgeries under the influence, that any practice he had left would be gone. And he goes to everybody he could that night and made a direct amends and let them know who and what he was and what had been going on, like nobody knew, you know. And and that was June 10th, 1935, and that was his last shrink. Now, you real historians know that it wasn't actually June 10th, it was June 17th, that uh, Bill miscalculated the death, but who, I mean, the date, but who cares, you know. Uh, we're not going to change it. But uh, So I think it illustrates how important the ninth step slash forgiveness slash making amends is, you know. Uh, you might make a case that, uh, that the whole program is based on forgiveness, you know, that the whole program is based on the ninth step, is getting us here so that we can get free, you know. And I talked a lot about that on my fourth step with my dad. You know, we have, uh, we have I mean, we have, we have children who were abused and victims of adults, and, and those resentments go on our fourth step. And, and there's nothing to put in column four. There's nothing that we did to possibly bring that event about. And, uh, but we owe ourselves something. We, owe, we, you know, we don't have to own the action, but we need to own the resentment. And, and sometimes the only way you can let go of that resentment is, for, for, is forgiveness, is understanding. You know? And not condoning, but, but forgiveness. And, you know, and what, I, what I learned with my father was... Uh, in, the, in my ninth step, when I looked at him on my list, and basically the eighth step is taking all the people you have harmed off your fourth step. And, and what we do is create another sheet, by the way, just the mechanics of what we do. We create another sheet, and we put those names on that sheet, and then we get clear about the harm, not the wrong, because we listed what we did wrong in step four, but what we get clear on is what the harm was, because the harm is different than the wrong. You know, how I harmed my mother is I stole money from her. I was like a ninja crawling on the floor, stealing her tips, you know. And all I needed was a black mask and the outfit to go through there. And, and I robbed my mother. That's what I did wrong. But how did that harm her? Well, she couldn't trust her own son. She had to hide her purse and her valuables from her son. You know, she couldn't make bills because I stole money from her. You know, uh, that, that was the harm. You know, you know, my wrong, I cheated. Well, you know, what was the harm? Well, she'll never trust anybody again. You know, and then there was another person involved who who may have had a relationship and may have had children, so there were other people harmed. So the it's that iceberg effect. What you see on the surface isn't necessarily what's there. There's a ton underneath the water, and and so we get clear on the harm rather than just the wrong. And then we put what we're going to do to make the amends and what the degree of difficulty is, and then we check it off as we get them done. And that list keeps us keeps us engaged. Right? It's about being true to a list. It, it's not, the, the ninth step is very clear. The ninth step says that we're going to make direct amends, we're going to make them wherever possible, and we're not going to make them when it will cause more harm. And so there's some of them on there, and I always tell my guys or whoever I'm sponsoring, just, it's about being honest to the list in step eight. We're not going to make amends to all those people. We're not going to bring about more harm. But we need them on the list, and we need to get clear and own the harm. And so, so the, the eighth step mechanically is how, how, we, how we do that. But, but the eighth step is a lot about, uh, about relationships. And, and, my, and my father, uh, what I did was I took a look at how he grew up. And I took a look at my grandfather and my grandmother. And my grandfather and grandmother were both chronic alcoholics raising uh, couple of four boys and two girls. You know. 
And my grandfather used to actually get, wake them up in the middle of the night when he'd come home drunk and have them fight each other and compete against each other. And they would steal each other's stuff if they wanted new clothes. They shared clothes, so they would steal each other's clothes. You know, what shot did my father have to be a parent, you know, when you look at his role models? The eighth step uh, in the 12 and 12 uh, has one of my favorite lines in it. It says, defective relationships with other people is the cause of all of our problems, including our alcoholism including our alcohol. Defective relationships, and not necessarily our fault that they're defective. They're just defective. You know? my, my relationships with the men in my life were defective. They were defective. You know, they were not good role models. And when you don't have good role models in your life, you have no shot at becoming a role model. You have no shot at any healthy relationships. You know? One of the exercises, maybe I'll go, I won't go into it tonight, but you know, after... Uh, the, the chronology of, of my marriage is that I got married in 1979 and I got divorced in uh, 1989 and then I got remarried in 1993 and then I got divorced again in 2009 to the same person, right? That's that sour milk story, right? <laughs> you all know the sour milk story? You put sour milk back in the refrigerator think it'll be better tomorrow? But uh, anyways, uh, there's a lot that took place after that, and, and it was a wake-up call for me, and I was devastated by it. And uh, I'm not going to go into the whole story tonight, but I was, I was blown away that I ended up divorced 15 years sober, you know, that I could not believe that I failed in a relationship 15 years sober. And it, uh, it caused, me to, uh, caused me to do a couple things. It caused me to uh, dive into meditation and prayer, out of necessity. Uh, I was driven to my knees again. Uh, I didn't want to play anymore. And uh, my only outlet, I knew I, and I didn't want to drink. And I didn't want to get high. And, uh, you know, I started listening to guided meditations and trying to silence the voices and trying to find some relief. Uh, I went back to the church of my childhood and, uh, and found some solace in that. I uh, had an experience there in that church. And uh, I got a new sponsor, you know, and... Uh, Garrett M. became my sponsor after that. And the first thing Garrett did uh, was have me do a timeline. Uh, and it's an interesting, uh, some of you probably in treatment probably did them, but uh, I had never done anything like that. And, and what it was is to take five-year increments of my life and uh, list significant events, good and bad, you know, good memories and bad memories. And it was amazing the stuff that I reached back for, mostly bad. I mean, it's a, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's an alcoholic thing or, or if it's a human nature thing, but these little, uh, what, I, what I perceive tragic events that I look back at were small events at the time, uh, dictated a lot of who and what I was. And, and what I saw, what I remembered was is that, uh, that I was moving constantly, that not just our family, I was. You know, I was going from my grandmother's house to my Aunt Mary's house to my Uncle Tony's house to, you know, my uh, Uncle Frank's house. And, and then my dad and mom, I realized, would get back together and we'd all move back into an apartment somewhere. And then they would split up again and I would end up in somebody else's house. And then they would get back together and we'd end up in another apartment somewhere. And we moved constantly. So I was... You know, my first five years of school, I went to five different schools, you know, and, 
you know, you don't become part of anything. You don't fit in anywhere. You know, you don't know anybody there. You're always the new kid on the block. And, and uh, that coupled with that I was shorter than everybody else and skinnier than everybody else. And I started school at five instead of six because my mom needed to go to work. And, you know, and I was younger than everybody else. And, you know, I realized that, uh, and I didn't know this until I looked at it on paper, that, that that's why I was bouncing around. They were breaking up and getting back together and breaking up and getting back together. And my dad just wasn't there. You know, and I remember, you know, and I was thinking about this today because of the holidays that, that uh, I don't, I did not have on my list the toys and all the stuff that they would buy for us that they could not afford every Christmas. What I had on my list is that my dad wasn't there, you know, that he was never there, that he was supposed to pick us up and he wouldn't show up, you know. And, and that kind of, you know, st- sitting, three of us would be sitting at the window at that time waiting for somebody to show up and then they wouldn't show up and... You know, the, the memories I have is my father sitting on my mother's chest and smacking my mother, you know, and, and the violence that took place and the screaming and the yelling. My uncle, who I stayed with, uh, my, uh, I won't mention his name, but I stayed with the same way. You know, he would come home middle of the night and all hell would break loose. And there was always this violence around me with these guys. Now, my uncle, and Mary, my uncle Tony and my Aunt Mary were like model people. They were, I loved going to their house, except that their son Gary used to beat the shit out of me every time I was there. You know? They were great people, but, but he was a bully. You know? And you wonder, well, how do you grow up and not have a healthy relationship, right? I mean, it's just the role models in my life didn't, dictate that I was going to do anything healthy in my life. Everybody runs. Everybody lies. You know, nobody does what they're going to say they're going to do. And I don't trust anybody. You know, if you don't trust the two people you should have trusted in the, in the first place in your life, uh, who do you trust from there? If you don't trust your parents, who do you trust from there? You don't trust your relatives. Who do you trust going forward? You don't trust anybody. Every relationship I had was at arm's length and every relationship I was a taker. Every one of them. That became apparent, you know, that in every relationship, I was a taker. At 15 years sober, I was a taker in the relationship. It was always about, when am I going to get out of it? You know, what's in it for me? When am I going to get what I want? It changed my whole perception, you know. I, uh, after my divorce, I did date a few crazy people in AA, in AA uh, and, uh, and then I realized that it wasn't them, it was me. You know, when, when you don't get along with anybody, it's not them. You know what I mean? Like, if everywhere you work sucks, it's not the job. <laughs> you know, if every relationship you're in, it fails, it's probably not them. You know? And I realized it was me. And I spent damn near a year by myself just cultivating a relationship with God and getting right in meditation, and getting right in prayer, and, uh, and really being sponsored again. I drifted away a little bit from my sponsor, my original sponsor. And, uh, and when a really healthy relationship came into my life, I didn't even see it coming. You know, I really didn't even see it coming. You know, you know somebody said that, you know, Shannon was interested, you know, and I said, oh, okay. You know, and I just, you know, that year that I was alone, for the first time in my life, I got okay being alone. Does anybody understand that? Like, it's okay that I'm not, that was never okay. My whole goal in life was to be in a relationship from age 13 on. And there were good reasons for that. You know, it was get the job, get the car, get the relationship. That's, that was the thing. And if you sleep with me, I'm marrying you. That's just the deal, you know. You can't leave the house after that, but I'm, uh, you know. 
And somebody asked me one time, why don't you go out? How come you don't go out with Shannon? I said, I don't know. I don't know. You know, and it was the, it's the first relationship I ever went in where I was not looking for some. I wasn't out of taker. I was not looking to sleep with somebody. You know, it just that wasn't my priority. That was, and this is the first time. You know, not you know, I've been around a little while. We actually, when we got together, took took sex off the table. You know, and I don't know whose idea that was, by the way, but we agreed to it. <laughs> I was thinking about that today. <laughs> I hope it was my idea. <laughs> but, you know, we had that conversation. Can we take it off the table? You know, and just get to know somebody for a change. Start somewhere else. Instead of starting in the bedroom and see if I can make her or him who we want them to be. How about we see who the hell they are before we sleep with them? How about that? And it's the first time in my life that ever happened. And, and uh, you know, I found the love of my life, you know. But the thing is, is you've got two takers, I mean, and it's going to fail. We're both givers. I, my wife, you know, I met her was a giver from the day one. You know, I could just see that. You know, she's a giver. I was a taker. I have to work on not being a taker, you know. Relationships are not 50-50. Divorce is 50-50. You know, relationships are 100%, 100%. You know, 100% in, 100% in, both sides. You know, it's about giving. So I guess I should talk about nine a little bit. I'm used to having the hour for the step. Then I, you know, Bill touches on just about everything, you know, the financial, the criminal, the relationships, uh, family, you know, indirect, direct. I mean, he touches on just about every amends in the, in the, that there is. And, and he starts with the money, which is probably the uh, most prevalent with us, you know, is, is the financial. You know, there's a line, uh, top of page 83, that, uh, that I, I would have liked to have seen him start this step with. And it says... Yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead, you know, and, you know, we must take the lead. You know, a remorseful mumbling that we are sorry is not enough, you know, and that's just, to me, one of the best lines in that step. Aside from going to them in a forgiving spirit and then the three rules of amends, you know, that, uh, you know, give us direction that we don't talk about what they did, you know, we... uh, we only talk about us. We don't uh, beg for forgiveness. And, you know, there's a couple of rules in there. But we want, I, I think, and I don't mean just as alcoholics. I think as people in general, we want instant gratification. You know, we want instant credibility. We want, you know, how, my, my question was, I owed, I owed a lot of money when I came in here. I, I racked up $50,000 twice. Uh, uh, once I paid off some of it before I got here because I got a, uh, a check for a company that I was part of, and uh, I didn't want my ex to get it, so I, I paid off some credit card debt. But when I walked in here, I had $50,000 in credit card debt. And uh, I remember saying to Brian, uh, do you know how, long, how old I'm going to be by the time I pay that off? I mean, that just seems insurmountable. And I, and I know there's probably people that owe more than that, you know. And, and he said, yeah, the same age as if you never sent them a dime, you know. Get busy, you know, and and uh, and I did. You know, I started chipping away at it, and and 
I made deals with the credit card, as Bill said. I love that Bill wrote this, uh, this, this book. It says, make the best deal you can. And so I called them and made different deals with them and got some no-interest cards and shifted balances around. You know, I had a, I had a little bit of a powder problem when I, before I came in here, which leads to, you know, I, was, I think I shared with you guys, I was spending $300 a day to go to work to make 80 you know. <laughs> and uh, it, made a lot, it made sense at the time, you know. But uh, it, it causes you to rack up some debt. And uh, I was 10 years sober when I paid it off. I was, it took me 10 years to get debt-free, and, and I try not to do that anymore. You know, around the holidays, sometimes we rack up a little bit of debt, but, you know, I, most of my credit cards I pay off every month. You know, I don't, I'm not going to let that go. I'm not going to let that happen again. And uh, The IRS was one of them. I kept saying to them, you know, some of us don't, aren't exactly honest on our IRS. I shared with you guys I can't do my taxes. I have to let an accountant do them. I can't even, it's just spiritual warfare that goes on uh, when I'm dealing with that. And, uh, but I don't remember signing any of those tax returns, you know. I sign, I, and I used to, I said to Brian, am I going to have to call the IRS? And he goes, no, don't worry about that. We'll get there when we're at step nine, you know. And, I mean, I'm going on and on, and I'm like nine months sober, and I'm working on my ninth step stuff. And I said, am I really going to have to call the IRS? He said, really, don't worry about that. Just let's, let's just stay on the course, and let's keep going down the list, and we'll get to that. And I didn't have to call them. They called me. <laughs> and some of them do take care of themselves, right? I mean, some of them do. I mean, this is, you know, there's, there's somebody else in charge now. We're on different footing. You know, there's somebody else running the show. And, uh, and I faced it. I didn't run from it. I, you know, I, I took an accountant with me, as, as Bill said, bring counsel with you. You know, I took an accountant with me. I introduced Paul to... Uh, the IRS people, and I said, he'll be handling it from here on in, and they wanted to know, they asked me a couple questions, like, why does this return look different than these other returns, and it was the first one I had filed, I got sober in March, I filed my first uh, sober return in April, probably what threw the red flag up, and uh, that return didn't resemble any of the ones before that, and uh, I said, you know what, honestly, I don't even know what's on those other returns, you know, you guys figure it out, let me know, you know. And they did. You know, they, they went back a year. They fined me and made me pay some restitution, and they let the rest of it go. You know, they said, hey, stay on court. I wasn't a big enough fish for them, you know. And all that fear and anxiety, you know, and it ended up costing me maybe $1,000, you know. And now I'm not afraid of the letters that come in the mail. You know, that dark cloud that follows us around when that envelope that says IRS is in the mailbox and your heart hits the ground. I don't have that fear anymore. You know, I don't have to, I don't have it at all. You know, and I don't walk around with this dark cloud over my sobriety anymore. You know, and and there's some stuff that it you know I couldn't make direct amends to. I mean, look, I, I wasn't a big shoplifter uh, when I was younger. I did some shoplifting. Those companies are no longer in business. Uh, I got that old when I got sober. But, I mean, if you've been robbing CVS and Walgreens and Publix, I mean, are you really going to go in there and say, hey, I've been stealing from you for the last 10 years, you know? It, probably not, you know, probably not, you know? And, and they won't know what to do with it anyway when you do that, you know? Well, you, you know, the manager's going to say, well, I don't know what to do with it. I can, how do I take that money, you know? And so, I mean, you might want to see what charities they're involved in, you know? Put a number on it. I always tell my guys on your eight-step, put a number on it. You know, and maybe we'll make $10 donations every month, $20, whatever you can afford. Maybe we'll make donations to the charity that they're involved in and get right with the universe. 
you know, get right with God. You know, that's what it becomes about. Not necessarily that I got to make this direct demands, but the, I mean, does publics really care? You know, probably wrote it off, you know, doesn't justify it, by the way. We still need to clear our conscience. We still need to get right with God. You know, I had an incident with uh, a cop in Pittsburgh where we decided, uh, you know, those, those, those entrepreneurs like us who hung out on the street corners, we got hassled a lot, you know. And this guy, this cop used to pick us up all the time. And we decided one night uh, to destroy his car uh, as punishment for harassing us. And, uh, and we got caught. And uh, Nick, I never paid him. I never paid him. We had to make restitution for the car. That's all we had to do. We, you know, they couldn't find us. So all we had to do was turn ourselves in, face restitution, financial restitution. And, uh, and my God, I look back at that and the harm that that caused. You know, his poor wife, that was her car. You know, God knows how that scared her and, you know, in the future how that affected her. And, you know, I never made amends for that. And one of the beauties of doing something like this is, is that stuff comes up. You know, and I was doing a step series, or a big book study, actually, up in Pompano. And I was talking about the ninth step, and Nick came to mind. And I shared with that group that I still had this amends out there that I had never taken care of for this police officer. And, uh, and I made an attempt to, uh, to do it. I, you know, the funny part is, is that I, after I shared that, I just went on with the big book study, and it took us about nine months to get through the book. And we're coming back around to the ninth step again, and I just can't share with these people. I know somebody's going to ask me, did you make the amends? You know, and I hadn't made it yet. So I started uh, researching it and trying to find Nick, a uh, police officer in Pittsburgh, and uh, I called the departments and tried to see if I could find one through the phone books and all that. And by the way, the police will not tell you where other police are. Uh, they call it stalking. <laughs> and, uh, and so I decided to make a donation to the uh, Homeless Children's Fund in Pittsburgh in Nick's name, without my name on it anywhere, just in his name, until it was paid off. And, you know, it turns out I kind of like the fund. You know, it's it's kind of a, a good fund that does some good work. And uh, and you know what? I got right with the universe. You know, I, p- I paid the amount that I was supposed to pay. I still keep paying. And, and, the, and, and I really hope to God someday, if Nick is still alive, that I see him. You know, because it's, I owe him so much more than the money. You know, I owe him so much more than the money. Once again, the wrong versus the harm. You know, uh, and, and I would love to tell him how wrong I was to do that and, and is there anything I could do to make it right but, and I would pay him again I mean I, I would give him the money if he asked for it but you know the, the, the criminal stuff I've sponsored a lot of guys who have criminal stuff I've, I've been involved in some I just had to make amends recently for something that happened in 1974 you know that uh, it came up on a background check uh, I, was, I was framed it was a little trafficking charge you know that that uh, somebody forgot to file a disposition on and a degree, and uh, it was still floating out there from 1974, you know. And so I had to spend some money to go clear that up. But, you know, those are those things that, that kind of take care of themselves. But I got guys that, look, a lot of people that I sponsor are down in South Florida because there's a warrant up in the Northeast, you know. And uh, they didn't come down here just for the weather, you know. And so, you know what, you, got, you secure counsel, you know, you, you call up there, you see what the deal's going to be, what is, what is going to happen when I show up and turn myself in. Uh, 
and you, and you do what you got to do. You know, I've had miracles absolutely take place. I've got, you're not going to believe it. The, 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 the district attorney was in N.A. Like, can you believe that? I said, yeah, I can believe that. You know, there's somebody else in charge. You know, he said, I got probation. They left me go. I didn't have to do any time. And I said, yeah, yeah. It's the end of a perfect day. Not a cloud on the horizon. What are you going to do? Yeah, think you go to a meeting maybe, you know, share that miracle. But I've seen that how I've seen guys do time. I've seen because they don't. One of my favorite ladies that I know, uh, Sarah, you know, she knew she faced it. She went in. She did the time. She was sending people to my home group. She started a big book study in jail. I got chills. Sending people to my home group. Sarah sent me here. You know, she made the best out of a bad situation. You know, and that's that. That's what changes, right? Our perception changes. And she faced the punishment. And now she's free, you know, and doesn't have to worry about that dark cloud. I mean, who wants to, every time they see police lights, have your heart fall to the ground? You know, that's not what we're about. We're about eliminating conflict in our lives. And I drink and get high over conflict. I cannot be conflicted spiritually. I cannot be conflicted emotionally. And I can't be in conflict with you. It's about getting right in all three dimensions, spiritually, mentally, and physical, or relationally, if you want to put it that way, you know? And that, I mean, the, the family stuff uh, has taken a long time. You know, it's uh, the relationship stuff I may never be able to repair. You know, I've rung some bells out there that I can't unring. You know, and I'm, I, I hate even talking about it. I hate even admitting it. You know, our book talks about, you know, not reflecting with, uh, not looking back in morbid reflection. Or regret, you know, but, and that may be, uh, but it's hard not to look back with regret, you know. I regret a lot because there were children involved, there were innocent uh, people involved, and, uh, and I was just self will run riot. I was just a pleasure seeker at any cost. I didn't give a shit what consequences it had on you. I didn't care what you felt. I didn't care how much it hurt you. If it seemed like a good idea at the time, I was in. You know, and alcohol gave me permission to do a lot of things that I would have never normally done, you know, and it gave me absolution afterwards, you know, and, and uh, I'll never be able to unring those bells. I don't expect anybody to forgive or forget. It just is what it is. But I owned it. I had to own it, you know. With kids, it was a different story. And, and you know what? I'm going to read something. I pulled it up earlier. My oldest son was... Uh, 12 when I got sober. My youngest son was two. My youngest son has never seen me with a drink that I know of. <laughs> and uh, when I made the amends to my oldest son, it didn't go really the way I thought it would go. You know, I thought it would go, don't worry, Dad, you were always there. We had a lot of fun. We did a lot of fishing together. You know, you helped me get a car. You know, uh, it was all good. You know, don't worry about it. Just stay on track. That's not what happened. He said, yeah, that sucked. You know, because he saw some violence. He saw, he had, he was part of what I hated my father for. He was part of that. You know, I have a picture of my father sitting on my mother's chest, and I would tell you that story like it happened every night. It didn't. It didn't. There was violence, yeah, but the physical stuff happened now and then. But I will tell you that's the only picture I have when I think about my father. And the night that changed my life, I knocked my wife down in front of my 10-year-old. 12-year-old, was he 10 or 12? 12. 
and knocked my wife, my wife down in front of him. And they had, both have, a two-year-old and a, and a 12-year-old have a picture of their father knocking their wife. They have a picture of what I hated my father for. And so that amends didn't go so smooth. That amends didn't go the way I wanted to expect it. There's a long road of reconstruction ahead. You know, and I didn't let that stop me. I didn't, I didn't look back. I didn't beg for forgiveness, as our book says. You know, I didn't, I, there was no servile or scraping there. You know, our actions, we must take the lead. Our actions will demonstrate more than our words. And this past June, I got this text from my oldest son. I want to thank you for all the skills you've taught me and the ethics you've driven into me about working hard and doing what's right. I know there were plenty of speed bumps along the way, but I want you to know how much I appreciate you taking the time to let me learn and providing me with the foundation for being successful. I don't know if I ever really said thank you, and I just hope I can continue to be that person for my kids. I love you and look forward to seeing you next time we get together. I responded... Thank you so much. I'm so proud of the man you've become. I couldn't be prouder. Yes, there were bumps along the way, and I truly regret that. But you and Joe, his brother, have always been and will always be the most important people in my life. Thank you for being you. I always look forward to seeing you guys. Can't wait to see you again. Here's what he writes back. Don't regret anything. It was all part of the journey. Have a good night. Unfreaking believable. 28 years later. It's a long road of reconstruction ahead. You know, don't let those speed bumps get in the way. Thanks for letting me be here tonight. Mm-hmm. I'll Thank get out you, of that. Oh. It's catchy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Pat. Um, it was great to hear you again. Um, now we are going to have Ryan come up for the secretary's report. Hi, I'm Ryan. I'm your, al- your recovered alcoholic secretary. Is this on? In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. And I've asked Kat to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering, and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Um, I'm Catherine. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Um, we are not cured of alcoholism, recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would, prob- we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime, but we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. We are now saying where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Nineteen forties style big book sponsorship from forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 
25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back into his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Uh, can I see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics? Um, and then is there anyone in the room that needs a sponsor? If you could raise your hand. No. All right, if you're too shy to raise your hand, just see any one of those people that just had theirs raised, and they'll help get you back to God. Um, please join us Monday nights for our Big Book study meeting, where the Big Book comes alive. Fellowship starts at 6.30, and the study starts at 7.15. Also, um, if you don't carry cash and you still wanted to uh, make a contribution to the basket, we have uh, a swipe that you can do in the back with Mike Chase, or um, we also do Venmo or Zelle. And we have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale on the table in the back. Um, I feel like there was another announcement. Oh, and if you need something stamped um, or signed or anything, uh, you can just meet me up here after the meeting, and I've got a stamp. I can stamp any paperwork for you. Um, we have some announcements. The Broward County Intergroup, uh, there's all the office hours and information on how to get in touch with them. If you need medallions, literature, uh, they got what you need. Next, uh, we got some volunteer opportunities. Um, so this Saturday, uh, December 14th, you've got AA's Got Talent uh, the planning meeting. Uh, so that's coming up. And then BCIC, are there any BCIC representatives in the group today? No? Um, all right, well, the next meeting coming up is going to be January 12th. And that's over. Did anybody go? Was it a good time? <laughs> Lots of fun. Awesome. Um, all right. So uh, 32nd annual, what is this, Broward County Inter Institutions Committee workshop. Uh, so bringing the 12th step to life, December 14th. Sounds pretty fun. Lunch. Lunch from 11 a.m. Uh, we got Doc coming up as our speaker for our next series, which is going to start January 2nd. Um, so we had him as guest a couple weeks ago, and it was great. So if, uh, if you're around for that, it'd be, better, it'd be good to check it out. Um, so that's it. Um, we meet every Thursday starting promptly at 7.15, and we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. And also, uh, last thing, there's a um, uh, no vaping, no smoking zone, 75 feet. There's actually buckets set up down here on the end, so if you could just make your way down to the buckets, um, that'd be great. Um, there's some moms baking cookies in there, so I don't really want to smoke around moms. It's, it's not good. So um, that's all we got. Thank you. I'd like to invite everyone to our Monday night big book study. And those who wish to thank the tonight's speaker, please line up down the center aisle. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. Thank you everyone for coming and see you all Monday or next Thursday.
sun comes shining through. But when you cry in on the rain So stop your sighing baby And be happy again Yes and keep on smiling Keep on smiling baby And I hope Shine, 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 let it shine. 
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Through the great divide 
just about to smile. So I face each day in a brand new way. Show up and plug in my guitar. Songs and people sing along and stomp their feet and raise their arms. And here in this moment that we share, nothing could come. song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.
tape. Got one man that just won't send. 